Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, please. Thanks for giving me a little extra time, too. <laughs> All right. Um, I've entitled the sermon something like this, The Simple Yet Serious Call to Follow Christ. The Simple Yet Serious Call to Follow Christ. Love God, love neighbor. The simple yet serious call to follow Christ. Love God, love neighbor. So we're going to get a running start in the chapter 10, actually. So flip back a page or whatever to chapter 9. Chapter 9, there's a turning point in the narrative in chapter 9, verse 51. Okay? So what I'm going to do is um, uh, I like to ask this question sometimes, and it is, uh, is this Gospel of Luke, is Luke writing primarily... A history book or a story book? Okay. Is it primarily a history or a story? Okay. Not one to the exclusion of the other. Um, but is it primarily a history or a story? I would submit to you that primarily it's a story. It's called a narrative. It's a gospel narrative. It's a story. Not that it's not historical. I actually believe all of it is historical, but he's not writing a history book. You understand what I'm saying? So that should cause us to read differently if we view those things differently. If we're reading a history book, all we're doing is reading, here's what happened. Here's what happened. What do we learn from what happened? But if we're reading a story, we're recognizing that Luke, the gospel writer, is crafting this story in a particular way in order to make a theological point. He's trying to make a point. He's crafting it in a certain way. That's how you can uh, account for some of the differences in the gospel accounts. They're trying to make different points. With the same story sometimes. So, we're going to get a running start. We, just to give a little context of where we are. So I think Luke chapter 9 verse 51, there's a turning point in the narrative there. It's a transitional mark. Previously is the Galilean section of the gospel. And now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the rest of, the, rest of uh, this story, the rest of this book is headed Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. We might think, reading that the first time, we might think, great, Jerusalem. There's good people there, right? The people of God, like, like the socio-religious center of the world. It's right there. That might be a good thing, except for the fact we had just read in chapter 9, verse 22, if we were reading through it. We would say, in chapter 9, verse 22, we find out that Jesus is predicting that he would be killed by the leaders of the religion whose capital city is Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Praise the Lord. So we think to ourselves, this is not good. This is, you feel like the rising action in the story. He had predicted that he's going to die, and he's headed right to it. You know what would be good, though? Some more followers. Let's get some more people on the team, right? So, in that section, he sends messengers ahead of himself to the village of Samaritans, and they did not receive him. There was a great rejection. Is this mission of Jesus headed south? Is it going to last? Wait, verse 57. Here comes some guys. All right. And as they were going along the road, verse 57 says, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And we're like, all right, good. Let's get some more people on the team. 
Come on, Jesus, please get this guy on the team, right? Get him with us. Now look how Jesus responds. Verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That, that's, that's not how you recruit people. What, what are you doing? To another, verse 59, he said, Jesus says to him, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no, no, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is going on here? It's like Jesus is like trying to talk him out of it. This is not how we do evangelistic messages. What's going on? Tell him about like, you know, heaven and like streets of gold. And tell him about the, tell him about the benefits of following Jesus. But don't tell him about following Jesus. Don't ask them to count the cost. Corner them with a series of questions so that they feel bad and they're like, all right, I'll follow Jesus. Force them to pray a prayer. We have it all mixed up sometimes, don't we? I was talking to an um, uh, older man in our church in Virginia Beach and his wife, and um, he's about to retire from the sheriff's office, and um, they're considering, they're praying seriously about joining us in Logan. And I said to him, as his, his wife and Abby went to the kitchen for a minute, I said, you know, look, I know your family have just... I've all moved back into town. All your kids and all your grandkids are in Virginia Beach now, in that area. I understand. I get it. Like, I'm not trying to put any significant pressure on you. I'm, I'm a terrible salesman, obviously. Uh, so, like, just... And, he, and then he quotes this verse. Really? He says, no, no. It's not a consideration. I'm ready to go. As we pray, that is not one of the things... So they're still praying seriously about it, and we'll see what the Lord does. And it's in this text you see that calling, that following Jesus is serious. This call to follow Jesus, this call to be a follower of Christ. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, it's not an easy call. It's a serious call. It's dead serious. It will cost you everything. Nothing is now yours. Everything is his. It will cost you comforts. Cost you your life. This passage is significant, one author says, because it shows that discipleship is not a fly-by-night affair. Discipleship requires that Jesus and the kingdom be the priority of life. Jesus, Jesus' situation here is worse off than beasts. End quote. You know, like foxes. They're, they're, they're Homes that they have, really nice homes that they have inside those holes, and you know, birds like their luxurious nests and stuff. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. We better take this following Jesus life serious. It's no joke. Our lives depend on it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Forfeits his soul. Chapter 9, verse 25. Now, listen how Jesus sends them out in chapter 10, verse 2. 
He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that is a great text and a text that a missionary ought to preach, right? It's like classic missionary text. There's, there's, there's a harvest and we need laborers. But did you see the next verse? Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. As Providence would have it, a neighbor moved into our neighborhood just right next door to us. As we look at our house to the left, who grew up in the LDS church. This was this past, uh, before he moved, in Virginia Beach, before he moved, um, the past couple of years. She had just moved in and um, she grew up in the LDS church, but she was rebellious and so she got out and um, her family still comes by who is very LDS and uh, we had opportunities to talk with them and it was a pretty great, pretty great opportunity. When we told our neighbor that we were going to move to Utah, she says, you know there's lots of Mormons there. <laughs> said, yes. And then she said, don't go. She's not a believer. She says, not worth it. See, why would you go? Everything is so set for you here. Great job. We love your house. We loved our house. Why would you go and mess it up? Say things like, one of your kids is going to become LDS. Say it's going to ruin your marriage. I mean, we were watching the, I was, I was watching um, the, uh, what do you call it, Super Bowl. And, um, and she's texting Abby over, like laying it on thick. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. So when I read this text, I think of that. It's not an easy call. You're going as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus prepares them by telling them how to respond and react. In verse 16, there's an emphasis on the rejection that has happened. Are you getting the point? It's not easy. When they return, when they return in verse 17, look what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that demons are subject to them, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this next truth, he says that this truth here is being revealed to children. Praise the Lord. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father of Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see that? It's a serious call, but even children can understand it. It's simple. My kids can understand it. Your kids can understand it. So, kids in here, Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus with your life. Everything committed to Him. Fourth graders in here, sixth graders in here, follow Christ. Decide that you're done living for yourself. And you're living for Jesus. You're obeying your parents, not just so you can be more comfortable, but you're obeying, Jesus, you're obeying your parents because you want to obey God. 
And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that prophets and kings desire to see what you see, but it did not see it. And they hear what you hear and did not hear it, but it's here. This is it. It's happening. And then interruption in the text. And here we go to our text. We have just a couple of minutes here. Okay. Um, there's a lot of anticipation going into this text here. It's building. It's building. And then this interruption. The lawyer asks the question, what must I do, teacher, to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do? Jesus, Jesus, like a good teacher, answers the question with a question. And we got a teacher like that. My dad is a teacher. Both my parents are teachers. And that's my dad. That's, I don't, maybe it's a typical dad move. I don't know. Um, I'm a dad now. I guess I can start doing that. Um, but it's like, why, why does he ask the question? Because he knows you know the answer. Right? It's going to make us think, you know the answer. And this guy's a lawyer. He knows the law. What does it say? The lawyer answers, and he was right. His answer is the great Shema, the Lord. You, uh, you shall love the Lord with your God. Sorry. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Simple, yet serious. Love God, love neighbor. What, what does that mean, you might ask? Thanks for asking. Let's start with loving your neighbor. Exhibit A. Love your neighbor. Point number one. Here we go. We're getting to the points now. We've got two points, all right? Two points. Ready? Love your neighbor. Love God. Okay? Number one, love your neighbor. So... The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, says, who then is my neighbor? See that in verse 29? And Jesus replies with this story. And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, I love that, by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... He, as he was journeying, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, Gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The question is bent on self-justification. Well, then who is my neighbor? Really? Who? And Jesus responds with a parable of a certain man, a fellow human being, an unnamed man, barely described man. Why? Because he's not the focus of the parable. The man isn't. That is left half dead. The who is my neighbor, that's what he's trying to say. The, the who is my neighbor is not the point of the parable. It's not the who. This parable, a man is beaten and left half dead, and Levite, Levite and priest pass by. Should they touch this half dead man? 
touching a full dead man is prohibited. What if his other half dies? What, what should we do? What, what if we walk over there and he's dead and we actually touch him? Now we're in big trouble. Oh, sorry. What do we do? Now, the Levite and the priest have high status among the Jewish people born, because they're born in the priestly families. They're elevated, elevating society because of their ancestry. Not because of what they have done or accomplished, simply because of their last name, if you will. So for them, not to help this man who had been left for half dead, left half dead, it's probably seen as like, okay, yeah, you guys are way up here. Somebody else will take care of that. So then there's this Samaritan, an outcast in society and in religion. The least respected people by the Jews. Unclean and were to be avoided. And he, the Samaritan, is the climactic figure of this story. Look what he did. He takes huge risks. First, he has compassion. His heart was in it. He bound his wounds. This takes time and patience. Do you think about that? You have a half-dead guy, right? He's about to die. And now you've got to, like, bind him with stuff. You know, like, bind his wounds. Like, moving him around. Like, that's what you're doing. Pouring on oil and wine. The stuff costs money. Set him on his own animal. There's sacrifice. There's inconvenience. Now, presumably, the Samaritan has to walk. Inconvenience. Then he brings him to an inn that costs money, takes care of him again, takes time and patience, gives the innkeeper two denarii. And one denarii is a, um, one denarius is a, is one day's wage. So there's more money involved. Then he enters into this like open ended agreement. Here's the money innkeeper, but whatever it costs, I'll be back. Just let me know. I got it. Take care of it. This is a risky move. He's opened himself up to be like taken advantage of. Is this, is he being fiscally responsible? I mean, would, would Dave Ram, what would Dave Ramsey say, you know, about this? This is not good. What separates him from the other two men? It's not simply that they're Jews and he's Samaritan. It's his heart. It's his compassion. He loves his neighbor. And this is Christ-like. As we saw when the widow's son had just died in chapter 7, you see that again. So what's the point? His point is that he is compassionate. He loves his neighbor. It's demonstrated by this risk-taking Samaritan. Jesus doesn't answer the man's question, does he? He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a question, which one of these do you think was neighborly? The huge shift in focus. You can't miss that. The point is not, who is my neighbor? Him, her, them. Not, not who is my neighbor, but the point is, be neighborly. Be kind, compassionate to everyone. Be a good neighbor. It's interesting that Luke does not, re- does not record the response of the lawyer. We, we don't know what the lawyer decides, and I think that's a... Um, it's a rhetorical device that, device that he uses to draw the reader into the narrative, draw us into the story. We don't walk away from the parable thinking, man, that lawyer really messed it up. We don't walk away from the parable thinking, oh man, that lawyer, he really turned his life around. That was really great. We don't know how it ended up. We walk away from the narrative thinking, what should I do? Would I have done that? 
How would I have responded to Jesus in that? Are we neighborly? I need to go and do likewise. Be compassionate neighbor to all. The Samaritan takes serious risks because he loves this unnamed random fellow human being. Do you love people? I'm sure if you would have asked the priest and the Levite, do you love people? They would have said, yeah, I love that guy. Love him. Love him big time. This love is not shown. Love for other people is not some arbitrary feeling that you fall into. The love is laying down your life for your brother. Even loving your enemies. Why? How do we love our enemies? By doing good to them. By praying for them. And by blessing them. Blessing them. Saying kind and good things about them. But they don't agree with my political... Bless. Love. Do we do this? Are we neighborly? That's the point. Are, not who is my neighbor, but are we neighborly? Do we love people in such a way that is more concerned with their well-being than our own? For many of us, it starts in our home, right? How are we loving our wives? By laying down our life for her. Roommates? Do you have roommates? Are you constantly trying to make sure everyone does the exact right amount of chores? Maybe you're a teen or a kid in here and like, well, my chore was last week and now it's yours. It's like... Or do you hope that you... Or do you hope that you get to serve the most? You can't wait to serve. You love your neighbors that way. Children, how are you serving your parents? Not just when there are consequences for not serving your parents. You know what I'm saying? Like, because mom told me to take the trash out, now I have to. But are you looking for ways to serve? Or is it just sit at the table and you think, really this again? How are you serving? Not this consumer take, serve your parents. You think of it that way? You think of ways to serve your parents? Without them asking? That is Christ-like. I love what Colossians says. It's really simple. There's like not very many uh, commands directed directly towards children, except for obey your parents. In everything, it's Colossians 3, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, you love to please the Lord. Right? Obey your parents in everything. But there's people in this church you need to serve. There's friends at work. There's unbelievers all around us we need to serve. Look for ways to serve them. We love people, all people. Be neighborly. Does that characterize our lives? Do we love people so much that we're willing to make sacrifices for them? Inconvenience ourselves. Men, we need to lead in this. That's what it means to be a leader. Love your neighbor. Point number two, love the Lord your God. 
I love how Luke follows this Good Samaritan parable with the story of Martha and Mary. Mary. Lest we think that this Christian life is all about loving our neighbor and doing good, kind things. Lest we think that the Christian life is all about serving and doing. There's actually a greater commandment that comes before commandment number two. Love the Lord your God. Look at verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was distracted with much serving while, Mar- while Mary sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his teaching. One thing is necessary, Jesus says. And Mary has chosen the good portion. Sits at the feet of Jesus. Love God first. The loving neighbor part flows from your love for God. There is one thing necessary, as Jesus puts it, and that is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. That's our highest priority. That's our highest love. See, Martha was going hard after serving. Mary was going hard after Jesus. Jesus is the end goal. Serving is not the goal. Jesus is the goal, always. You know how we know if we have it mixed up? We get anxious and troubled. What's this? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. So, do we find ourselves anxious and troubled about many things? Maybe we're serving without maintaining our relationship with Christ. We've forgotten why we're serving. The truth of this is demonstrated in the most profound way in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve. And to give himself as a ransom for many. Mark 10. Jesus comes to be the obedient slave, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2. Even on the cross, Jesus demonstrates his love for his neighbor. When he looks at the people that are crucifying, and what does he say to them? What does he say? He actually says it to God. What does he say about them? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But be reminded... He is the ultimate neighbor. He's the greatest neighbor of all time. But be reminded, it's because he loves God first. He goes to the cross because it's his will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweats drops of blood. Jesus prays in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Love God first. So yes, let's be people who love our neighbors and take that seriously. We need that. But also, more than that, 
Let's be a people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything for Him. He has sent His Son to die on the cross. So that by placing our faith and trust in Him, we can have a relationship with Him. We can be clothed in His righteousness. The veil has been torn and we can enter into His throne with boldness. I love it. His throne of grace. Where we will find mercy and help in time of need. Hebrews 4. We get God. God. We get relationship with Him. So, spend time at the feet of Jesus. That's our priority. Dig into His Word daily. Study, pray, pray, pray. Point number one, I've switched them on you. Love God. Point number two, love neighbor. It's just that simple. But it's just that serious. Let's pray.